Hey everyone, welcome back to the Back to Ones podcast season two. I am so excited for what's coming up in the second season and especially in this first episode because in this episode I got to sit down with a pretty amazing director, Zach Lepofsky. I've been hanging on to this episode because I thought it would be really cool to coincide the release with Zach's incredible film Freaks, which is in theaters tomorrow, Friday the 13th of September. I hope you enjoy hearing about Zach's process and insights, a bit of advice for up-and-coming filmmakers, and be sure to listen all the way to the end because we're doing a pretty cool little giveaway where you can get the Shotlister app, which will make planning out your next film so much easier. Okay, without further ado, here we go into Back to One's podcast, season two. Hey, welcome to the Back to One's podcast. We are sitting here with Zach Lepofsky, who is a local Vancouver director who now spends a lot of time in L.A., um, he recently, uh, finished working on Freaks and is coming out this summer. He also recently did the Disney adaptation, live action adaptation of Kim Possible, as well as plenty of gruesome horror <laughs> indies that I've been lucky enough to watch. And, uh, yeah, I'll let you take it away. Introduce yourself more. Hi, how's it going? Uh, podcasting world. Um, yeah, I, uh... I grew up in Vancouver, been making movies my whole life since I was a wee boy and uh, started as an actor for a little bit when I was a kid and then, uh, yeah, just been making movies every moment that I could, helping on every film set I could and uh, been lucky enough to now make a life at it. Nice. Living the dream. Yeah, I am. (laughs) So how did you, you got started as a kid, how did you start and what kind of a route did you follow? Because right now you're like every Vancouver director's dream. Uh, Yeah, well, I started um, basically growing up on film sets because my mom was a TV producer, and she made cheap uh, for stuff for Knowledge Network, which is like the provincial educational network. Uh, And back then they used to make TV shows, and she was the producer of them, and they never had enough money. So she basically cast me because it was cheaper than babysitting. And, uh, you know, I'd be a latchkey kid making sure he got home before the weirdo down the street, you know, kidnapped him or the adopted brother, you know, who is he going to be loved by the adopted family or, you know, all sorts of educational content uh, in the early 90s. And then uh, I started acting on bigger and bigger stuff, but very quickly started loving sort of how things were made a lot more than being in front of it. I was mostly just acting so I didn't have to be at school. And uh, just started back then, it was, I basically was born, I was born in 1984, which was the year that the Macintosh came out. And so my life has kind of paralleled in a lot of ways the digital revolution. So by the time I was in kindergarten, which was 1990, schools could actually afford Macintoshes. So my, my kindergarten grade was the first grade where there's actually even computers in the school and kind of... I was immediately a computer nerd as well, and, and from had from acting, had money to have a computer at home, which was rare, and had apples and kind of just immediately started doing anything I could with photos and videos. At the, at the beginning, all you could really do was do animation because the computers weren't powerful enough to do video yet. So I had one of the first digital still cameras, which was about the size of like, you know, it was about this big. I don't know how big, what that would be. Um, bigger than a loaf of bread. And... <laughs> Um, it fit floppy disks into it, and it could fit 30 images per floppy disk. So when I would do animation, I'd have a stack of floppy disks, and I'd have to very carefully open 
the camera and slide out the floppy disk and slide in another floppy disk at 640 by 480 and animate stuff. And then eventually I could do video and Final Cut Pro came out. And basically as I grew up, I was still very, very young, but I had access to it as much as anyone else because it had just been released, like Final Cut Pro 1. I had more hours on it than people that were 10 years older than me because they had day jobs and and uh, you know they had already been taught how to do stuff on on uh, much bigger non-digital formats like Betamax and stuff. So I basically just grew up being mostly a post nerd. And so a lot of the first things I did after high school was helping people edit, helping people do visual effects because I wanted visual effects in my home movies that I was shooting with my friends. Um, and by the time I was sort of 18, 19, I started making films with people that weren't just people I went to school with, high school with, and started meeting other filmmakers. And that was kind of my first connection to the Vancouver you know, film community and the Celluloid Social Club and that whole world. Nice. What was the Vancouver film community like? I mean, now it's huge and there's like big shows and, and yeah. well, films. I, think, but... I don't know if it was a heyday because I think everyone might think they grew up in the heyday. <laughs> it feels different now, but maybe that's just because I'm no longer in that space. But at the time, digital video was sort of causing this explosion in creativity because it was truly, now that you could film on a mini DV camera and edit on a lap, on a, not a laptop, but laptops weren't powerful enough, on a you know G4 mm-hmm. desktop computer, um, everyone was just shooting stuff like crazy. Like there was a 24 hour or 40 hour film festival almost every weekend. Like, and that's really how I learned. I made probably 10, like 24 hour films. And it was just like you, and there would be 50 teams like competing. And it was just, and it was like, now there's like two or three of those a year. Mm -hmm. There was literally like two a month. Wow. And everyone was just, shooting and editing and meeting people and seeing what, and then like you could shoot in 24 frames a second and that was like a revolution and like like when I made my Crazy Eights film that was the year that you could shoot in 24p which was like a revolution we were like it looks like film oh my god but so as a kind of emerging filmmaker it was an, a super exciting time because everyone was just shooting everything and you would you would direct something and then you'd work on someone else's and then you'd work on someone else's and you'd you'd learn all the jobs and hold the boom and then do the visual effects and then and um so yeah i most of my closest friends came from that era and i don't know if that's still happening now i mean obviously things are even easier to film now than they ever were but there was tr- there was this like excitement like people that I was working with were had been to university and given up on whatever they had studied to become because now they could just buy a camera and buy a computer and do it without having... Because before that, you basically had to go to film school to have access to the equipment. And for the first time, you did, that wasn't the case. That's awesome. Yeah. It's like a sorry mom moment. I'm yeah. going to be a filmmaker. <laughs> totally. Awesome. Luckily, my mom was totally supportive because she was a filmmaker herself. That's always, like, very lucky. Um, so you basically, you started young, you went and jumped into these like 24, 48 hour festivals. You then did a crazy eights short. Yeah. Where did you go from there? Uh, well, crazy eights, uh, I made a short film called crazy late, which is a bit of a pun. And, uh, it was like a one take adventure film and continued doing posts and editing for about a year and a half or two years and then there was an opportunity to be on a reality show called On the Lot which basically everyone I knew applied for every all the people that were doing all those competitions basically heard this 
moment where Steven Spielberg said, I'm going to try and find the next great filmmaker and anyone in the world can apply because, which was pretty amazing because everything up till then was usually you had to be an American and everybody was just like trying to apply to this thing. And the very first step was they had built a website where they were going to host videos. And even that was like, whoa, like, cause YouTube didn't really exist yet. It was just sort of something that everyone was still using real player and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so like hosting, so everyone uploaded short films and you had to upload a film. I think it was five minutes long or something. And the only film I had was crazy light, which was 10 minutes long and it was one shot. Yeah. So I edited that one-shot video down to five minutes. <laughs> I basically took out, like, every other second. So it looked like it was edited because it was because the camera was constantly moving. So I just cut out all those individual moments and crammed it down into five minutes. And that film got some attention on that website. And one day I got an email or a call or something, I don't remember, saying, hey, they want to interview you. And that started, like, basically like a six-month process to getting onto that show, which involved all sorts of different things, including on-camera interviews, psychological evaluations. At one point, they called and said, um, okay, you've made it to the top, I don't know, the top 100. Um, Here's a logline. You need to deliver a short film with this logline in seven days. Because they wanted to see, because everyone had submitted these films, but they didn't know if you could do it in seven days because this this TV show was going to air every week. Um, and luckily I'd been doing 24-hour and 40-hour movies, so it was like, seven days, no problem. <laughs> um, and a friend of mine was shooting um, a indie feature, and a lot of my friends <clears throat> were working on it. And so on the weekend I said, hey, can I have all the gear and shoot this short film? And he was super supportive. Um, so we shot this little short film, and then that ended up being one of the films they showed on on, on the lot, which is the name of the competition. And uh, that was a very crazy experience in the summer of 2007 where 10 million people, in the you know, every night would watch and vote. America would vote on if your film was good or bad and you'd do a different genre every week and you'd get sent home or not. Sounds like a blast. Yeah, it was basically like filmmaker summer camp. Um, it was a wildly unpopular show. Like, basically nobody watched it. Um, but it was amazing for us. Yeah. Oh, time for a reboot. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was incredibly expensive to make. It was like $100 million first season. Because uh, they basically had to make... Because imagine, it was the most amazing thing to see. Like, say they'd be making... Because not all the filmmakers would make a film every week, so they'd usually do six. So six full L.A. film crews making six short films, and then six crews filming those six crews. <laughs> um, so you'd have 12 crews... At once, and then all of that, and then making a live show. Like, it was basically at the height of American Idol. So so Fox was the network, which had American Idol. Mark Burnett was the producer, which had Survivor, which was the most popular reality show of all time. And then Steven Spielberg was, you know, the film entity, so you had, and the highest-grossing filmmaker of all time. So it was, like, the three biggest entities of their era making something. They were going to spend a lot of money, but it needed to be as popular as American Idol to even break even, so... Awesome. One and done. Luckily, I was a part of it. But that's where I met my now directing and writing partner, Adam. He was one of the contestants. Nice. So Um, is Adam from Vancouver? No. No, he's from Miami. Um, But he moved to L.A., and then he ended up being one of the contestants. In the very, very, very first episode, where it was the top 50, he and I were roommates. um, Because the casting director thought we would get along, and we were roommates for one night. And the very first um, test that they did to the top 50 was to make a movie in 24 hours. <laughs> and I was like, 
no problem. And and, <laughs> and we didn't know each other. So I was like, hey, you want to make one with me? And and he asked his friend Sam, who he knew because they had actually gone to film school together. And we made this this short film. And the whole time I was like, we got to do something to like stand out, to like blow them away. Um, and I, they didn't know me, but I was like, I can do visual effects. Trust me, I can do something amazing. Like, and we came up with this idea of um, this hat that stops time. And we only had 24 hours. They're like, you can do these visual effects in 24 hours. I'm like, only if we do it this way, this way, and this way, it'll look amazing, but be super simple to do. Um, and we made this film, and I became known as Frozen Coat Hangers Boy because in the film, these people are fighting over this hat, and they pull it, and all these coat hangers go flying into the air and then freeze midair, which nice. is just a still frame. But it looks like time's frozen and everyone was amazed and all the judges were like how is that even done and so I got known as frozen coat hangers boy excellent yeah <laughs> awesome so then from on the lot what happened after that um nothing for four and a half years yeah it basically <laughs> on the lot was in the summer of 2007 and I had everyone telling me you'll be directing a big budget you know summer blockbuster in six months like this is you know because for that moment we were the talk of the town um, and like my agent, who's still my agent today, had like broke past the quarantine and came backstage and gave me his card and said, "When you're off this thing, kid, you give me a call." And so the the best thing from it was I got agents, which is the, one of the hardest things to do, mm-hmm. um, and is really the first big breakthrough you ever have when you're trying to be a filmmaker. Um, but it was the summer of 2007, and in the fall of 2007, there was a massive writing strike, which basically put Hollywood on hold. Um, and then there was the recession of 2008, 9, 10. So basically, first the industry froze, and then the few opportunities we had that we were um, basically disappeared because everyone could see the recession coming. Uh, and then no one was hiring. Uh, the amount of jobs basically went you know, down to like a tenth of what they were. So all the super experienced directors were taking all the jobs that usually emerging directors would take. So basically, I just didn't work for four and a half years, which was... Really, I, it's not that I wasn't doing anything. I was writing and I was pitching and I was getting the odd commercial and I was going down to LA and I was shaking hands and I was writing more and I was, you know, doing everything I possibly could. At the time, it felt like I was completely failing and I was very depressed and I was lying on the floor, just so miserable I couldn't even get up and not, you know, because you have the spot, the moment of your life, kind of this amazing spotlight. I mean, I was in my early twenties, so. I was very dramatic and also thought that I had basically ruined the one opportunity that I had. Um, And then once I finally, you know, I really hit rock bottom at this one moment where I got this call. Because people would look at my short films and be like, wow, these are the best short films I've ever seen. But you've never directed a movie, so I can't tell my boss that you should direct this movie. Because until you've done it, I can't vouch for the fact that you can do it because no one wanted to stick their neck out um, which is true of almost all executives in the world Like they, if you've done it before they'll hire you to do it again that's basically which is a catch 22 you're like how do I how do I have a career if I haven't done it before um, and so I was at this moment where I got this call and it was for this um, this company called a, Asylum I think I can't remember if it was through my I think it was just through the internet somehow they reached out to me and Asylum's basically like one step above porn. They're basically like the worst production company in the world that doesn't make porn. Uh, and their entire business model is make movies that the cover will 
confuse the buyer and they'll buy it thinking it's a different movie. Oh. So they make Transmorphers when Transformers is coming out or they make Atlantic Rim when Pacific Rim is coming out and they make them for as little as possible. Like they make the movies for like, you know, 50 grand or 100 grand. Like they they told me they they pay the DPs like 30 bucks a day or something. And so I go to this place I'm like, "Oh man, is this really like have is it really gotten this bad like but I need to make a movie before people will believe me that I can make movies." And I go to this place out in Burbank, and the guy greets me on rollerblades. And he's like, oh, I'm so excited. And he's like rollerblading me into his office. And he's like, I'm so sorry you've ended up here, but I'm so excited that you have. He's like, you're a real filmmaker. Like, oh and he like, you know, it was the first time anyone actually wanted me to make a movie. And I was like, do I really? Like, is it this bad? And like, I was moping around. And then I got this call um, to make this uh, MOW in Vancouver. And it was a, the direct. The producer was in LA, and she said, "Hey, uh, someone said you might be. You're from Vancouver. We're shooting this MOW. Can you come and have coffee? I'd love you to meet. Here's the script." And I read the script, and it was awful. But I was like, "There's something here. I could, I could, I could do something with this." <laughs> and I was forty grand in debt, and they were going to pay me forty grand to do it. So I was like, had the coffee, and I just made her believe that this I was going to make this crappy MOW the most amazing thing ever. Uh, and she was one of the few people in Hollywood that was like, I believe in you. She was really like smart, and she's still a, a close friend t- to this day. And she basically said, I believe you can do this. And she was looking for someone that wasn't just the usual guys that do all the MOWs. She wanted something. She wanted it to be good. You could see my passion. And and so I flew up to Vancouver to to shoot my first you know, sci-fi monster MOW. It was called Tasmanian Devils, about giant man-eating Tasmanian devils. And they're eating... Uh, what do you call them? Um, daredevils, people oh that gosh. you know jump off. <laughs> they were base jumping off uh, mountains, and they get eaten in Tasmania, and they get eaten by Tasmanian the devils. Uh, no, they. It was Apollo Ono, who's like a famous speed skater at the time. He was because it was around you know 2010. He was like one of the world, like won most, more gold medals than anyone else. And he was a base jumper, and he base jumps off, but his parachute gets all screwed up and he crashes into an ancient aboriginal burial ground where he gets impaled on a giant a spike oh, and wow. all the blood seeps out of his body into crevasses in the rock and uh, enact an ancient curse that's basically these devils, these Tasmanian devils that are giant come to protect the island from foreigners and so. proceed to eat uh, all his other base jumping friends including the one park ranger, um, Winnie Cooper from the Wonder Years. So very, like, subtle HBO style <laughs> <Yeah>. for this. <laughs> anyway, I tried to make it the best movie I can, and I'll say it's the best Tasmanian Devil movie ever made. Uh, and I think it's actually pretty fun, but it's definitely a cheesy movie. But that was the first break I really got um, that then led to the next movie, and that led to the next movie, and, you know, climbed my way up from the depths. It certainly wasn't a $100 million blockbuster. It was basically the job you get when you're starting out. And it was four and a half years after the recession had kind of, you know, basically the economy had kind of righted itself and people were hiring newcomers again. Nice. And now you just finished like a giant Disney project. And I did, yeah. freaks your own. Yeah. So it's led, you know, it's led to the tough thing is when you're starting out, there's basically two types of jobs you can get that if they're not your own, which is either horror, horror or comedy. And that's basically because usually those are the two um, cheapest genres. Um, and I was more in the horror side. I'm not a huge horror fan, but I was in the fantasy adventure side. So basically the three first movies I made were all 
basically horror adventures. I made them more adventures than they were horrors because that was my sensibilities. Nice. Yeah. What advice would you give yourself starting out now? With yeah. All of the hindsight 2020. Um, well, I think the biggest, there's kind of two things. One is, and I've, and I see this happen to everyone I know is you get to this point where you've made a short film or a few short films or even your calling card short film that you put all your heart into and you went to festivals and you showed it to everybody and everyone says it's great and nothing happens. (laughs) That happens to everybody. Uh, Unless your short wins, you know, at Sundance and suddenly you're off to the races. But for the 99% of the other 10,000 filmmakers, that doesn't happen. Uh, and what happens to most people is basically they stop making anything. They, they say, I'm ready to make a feature. And they, they start doing everything they can to make that feature. Um, and they stop making shorts. They stop making anything. And, and what happens in a lot of cases is people end up forgetting that you're a director because you're not you're not still making anything. So the tough thing, one of pieces of advice is to, is to just keep making stuff. Cause each time you make something, um, it tells the world that you're a creator and that you're a filmmaker. And if a few years go by and you haven't made any some, something, even though you're holding on to your amazing short film, you should really just make something. And it doesn't, and don't, it doesn't have to be as like, you could just be shoot something on the weekend with your friends and put it out there. There's a lot of filmmakers where, um, the stuff they didn't expect to be their calling card became it, and and you start meeting every time you make something, you meet people that then go, "Hey, man, on your next thing, I'd love to do blah blah blah," or you meet some someone of influence that goes, "Hey, that was actually pretty cool." You know, what what do you think of this script? And if you don't create stuff, those conversations never happen. Um, and then the other, I mean, there was a bunch of different pieces of advice, but the biggest thing during that period of depression that I had was. I was really depressed because I was putting all of my um, happiness in a future achievement. Like, I will be happy when I make a movie. And until then, I'll be miserable because I haven't achieved what it is I want. And it's not that you shouldn't be goal-oriented, but it's really dangerous when you put all your happiness in a future thing that you don't control. Because you'll, as my dad pointed out at the time, you may achieve that goal. You might make a man-eating Tasmanian devil movie. And you'll be happy for five minutes that you made a movie, but then there'll be some new future goal that you put all your happiness in, and you'll end up spending like 90% of your life miserable trying to be happy once you do something. And what's far healthier, and in my case, as soon as I started doing it, it started leading to me um, working way, way more, is just being really, making sure the process is really enjoyable. Um, because that's the one part that you can control. The the outcome you have no control over. You might make an amazing movie and it comes out right at the moment of some other thing or some other movie that takes your thunder or or you don't get into that festival because that one programmer didn't like it and it doesn't mean your movie wasn't amazing. It just means it didn't lead to the success you were hoping for. So um really being focused on working with great people and making stuff no matter what and making sure the process of making it is enjoyable. That's what you have control over. And as soon as I started doing that, I started getting the achievements I'd always wished I had had. Hmm. What advice do you have for emerging filmmakers? You know, they're, they're doing work, they're creating short films, they feel like they've got their hustle on, and how do they 
start pushing that to the next step. Yeah. Um, well, it's been funny because I basically just took my own advice, which was, and it's led to more opportunities than I ever got doing the jobs for hire. So basically I did like three MOWs of kind of increasingly, you know, impressive scale, all horror. Uh, then I did a TV show, which was awesome. And, you know, that would be a dream job, like making a whole two seasons of television. But none of that really led to making the movies that I really wanted to make. I was now working as a director, making good money, spending lots of other people's money. Like it was really great. But at the same time, knowing that I had so much more to offer and it wasn't, and I wasn't doing it right. Like I was taking the jobs I could get, but they weren't like the trueness of, you know, something that was truly mine. And I saw this uh, talk um, by Mark Duplass of the Duplass brothers at South by Southwest. Yeah. And he gave this speech called the calories not coming and anyone should just stop this podcast right now and go watch that. And then come back. (laughs) And we're back. Uh, (laughs) And in it, he basically says, and in some ways he's just explaining what he did, but he basically says, just make the movie that you can make right now. Like all filmmakers, they always like want to, their first script they write is always this like $50 million movie that no one's ever going to let them make. And eventually they get fed up and they write a $10 million movie and then eventually they get fed up and they write a $1 million movie, but they still don't have a million dollars. They're still in a position where they need someone else to give them that money. Mm -hmm. They basically need to ask permission to make whatever it is they want to make. And what Mark basically set out was his first movie was about a puffy chair and a van. And the reason was is because him and his brother had a puffy chair and a van and they made a movie about that and they won Sundance. Mm -hmm. And they literally made it with just what they had. They had a camera, they had a puffy chair, they had a van, they had the two of themselves, they both acted in it. They made it in a weekend and they won Sundance. And so, and from that, they got excited because they told the Sundance people, we're coming back with a a feature next year. Mm -hmm. And they just said, okay, what do we got? got, And they basically made a movie just with the resources they just had. With the people they knew, with the stuff they knew they could get for free, with the locations that their friends could get them into, they just made that movie. And basically what he says is, just survey all the things you have and write the script that uses those things. And tell it with your voice that's only yours, that your perspective that only you can do. Um, and so by basically, um, after, right before I started doing the TV show, I made these three movies and... Um, I become best friends with, uh, well, I still was best friends with Adam, who I met on On the Lot. And the two of us were in very similar situations. I'd made three movies. He'd been doing a lot of stuff with in TV. He'd worked on Jimmy Kimmel and stuff. And we were both like, man, man, we just need to make a movie. Like, screw this. We just got to make our own movie. And we saw this and we were like, okay, what do we got? We're going to do it, Mark. What do we got? And we were like, okay, we got, he at the time had a four-year-old. We are like, okay, we got two of us. We've got a four-year-old. We've got your house. You've got a 5D. Your family owns a restaurant. That's the movie. <laughs> what are we, what's it about? And we spent that summer writing that movie, and that became Freaks. And originally it was going to be made for $0, uh-huh. and we were going to star in it, um, and his kid was going to be in it, and we are going to shoot with his 5D in his backyard. And then we got the, this thing to do this TV show, and so we kind of put it on hold, even though we didn't want to. And then basically the TV show took over, and then at kind of – Season two is coming to an end, and we thought, okay, by then 
over those years of doing season one and two, we had met a lot more people. We'd actually made a lot more money ourselves. And we're like, okay, now's the time. We're actually going to make this movie that we wrote. Um, And a friend of mine, actually that guy that I told you about that um, I borrowed his film crew on the weekend when he was shooting his indie, he had since given up on filmmaking because he was penniless and broke and couldn't do it any longer and and started a, um, a furniture business. Um, which I lent him some money when he was first starting out, like a few thousand dollars to get his couches out of the port of Vancouver. <laughs> and it had since become the largest wholesale furniture company in the lower mainland. Oh, wow. And he was like, oh, man, you're making a movie? He's like, I'll give you a hundred grand. Because oh. he just wanted to like, and we're like, shit, then. now we have a hundred grand. And then Adam's uncle was like, wait, you're making a movie? Like his uncle had just sold his company for $40 million. It was like, oh, someone's giving you a hundred grand. I'll give you a hundred grand. And suddenly we had 200 grand. And we're like, oh, okay, well maybe we don't have to start in this. And we're like, we used 10 of it to get a casting director. And basically we started, things started kind of coming to us, not because we were saying we need all this stuff or else we're not making it. In fact, we said the exact opposite. We said, no matter what, we're making this movie at this date Mm -hmm. with whatever we have. And if anyone comes to us saying, I'll give you this, but... Mm -hmm. Because we had been through so many movies where we got attached to a movie and they either... The movie never happened because we didn't get this actor and to get that actor, you need this and to get that, you need this amount of money and it would always fall through or it wouldn't fall through and they would fire us because it was actually going and they would hire a bigger director. Um, so we're like, no matter who comes in this door, we're never giving away the keys. We're never, we are always going to have the ability to turn the key and make this movie, no matter what. Yes. And with that, people, it became contagious. And we had some money from the TV show, so we put that money in, and people really liked the fact that we had skin in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just started kind of, eventually we got some actors involved um, to play the roles that we were going to play. One of them was Bruce Dern, who's been nominated for two Academy Awards, was to play the role that I was supposed to play. <laughs> Eventually, we found an actress to play the kid because we tested his son and his son was awful. And so it just kind of got bigger and bigger and bigger, but it was contagious because we were saying we're doing it no matter what, and with whatever we have, we'll, we'll do it. And that's something that any filmmaker could do mm-hmm. that we probably should have done five years earlier. Um, and the crazy thing, and so then we made that, and then immediately after making that movie, which was an incredible experience, and I could talk hours about it. We went and we had um, done the TV show at Disney, and they asked us to do this Kim Possible movie, or pitch on it, and we pitched and got the job. And so, we, because right as we were finishing the editing of Freaks, we went to do Kim Possible, which was more than ten times the budget of Freaks. Um, but the crazy thing is, is now that they're, Kim Possible's out and Freaks is coming out, the doors that are flying open right now are doors I never thought would open. Mm-hmm. Like some of my idols are opening the door and saying, oh my God, it's great to meet you wow. because of Freaks, not because of the much bigger movie that I did with Disney. Yeah. Because it was from the voice of our own. It was unique. It was We wrote it. We directed it. it showed, you know, And the film turned out well, thank God. But basically what people are responding to is this indie movie that we made that's done really well. It went to Toronto Film Festival and it's coming out in theaters this year on August 23rd. Buy your tickets. Um and it was that movie that we made without anyone's permission that has opened up some of the most incredible opportunities that are, that are in front of us right now. And now people are now it helped that we had made all those movies for hire because it showed 
oh, they can also work with a budget and, oh, they can also take notes from executives and, oh, other people have actually hired these people. So we, we had credibility because of the work we had done for hire. But it, but that alone was kind of not really pushing us that far up the chain. Mm-hmm. It was making our own movie that, um, that really kind of accelerated stuff. Um, so to answer your question, watch that Mark Duplass speech and then... <laughs> Write down all the things that you can get for free and make a movie about that stuff. And that's how you um, launch your career. And the thing is, you can do that right now. And a year from now, you can have a movie finished and people will see you as a filmmaker. If you want to be a filmmaker, go make a mo- film. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's... Uh, it's it's ins- pretty simple. It's inspiring, too, as a, as a filmmaker to... I mean, you can do all of these things as a filmmaker and you do them in a bubble. And especially with short films, it feels like you can do it again and again and again. And it's, it's, it can be as expensive as you want it to be and, and you can hit a wall easily. So Yeah, I mean, with all the like budgetary constraints, just make the budgetary constraint part of the narrative. So like, if you can't afford a certain type of camera or a certain, you can't even afford, like on Freaks, we didn't even have um, a dolly. Like we didn't even have, we, I don't, we had tripod, but we only had it for certain days when we knew we had to do a lock-off for visual effects. Did Other you have than that, a skateboard or a skateboard wheelchair or no dolly shots. No, just we we knew we weren't gonna have money, so the aesthetic of the film was it's it's rough, it's raw, it's handheld, it's because mm-hmm. that was what we could afford. So we made sure that we wrote a story that felt like it should be told from that perspective. So look at your constraints and the things you can't have. Oh man, I can't have a crane. Well, don't write a movie that needs a crane. Write one that's cooler because it doesn't have one. So that all those things become, you know, part of, they all become choices rather than, Uh (laughs) rather than restrictions. Much fancier. Nice. Um, Yeah. Wow. I I could sit here and pick your brain probably for hours about the (laughs) process of of making freaks. Um, Yeah. I mean, there's not much to it other than we didn't ask for permission and we just begged, borrowed and stole everything we could at every minute and that became contagious. Um, the other kind of really big element that led to Freaked success, um, uh, well, there's few, one, Adam and I produced the movie, which we have never produced before, but we just started every conversation with, okay, we're the producers, but we've never produced before. So, Mr. Lawyer, what is it that we have to make sure that we ask at this point? <laughs> like, And they would say, oh, well, you need to get this signed. Like, okay, great. So what is that? <laughs> okay, good. And just like, we just walked through the whole thing basically just telling people we didn't know what we were doing and asking professionals what we should be doing and you know we asked every producer we knew all of their advice and that just kind of led the way okay so what is you know a collections account and how do we get one and okay when do we need one and just that made the whole thing happen um and then the other big element that led to its success was um adam and i have really fallen in love with basically this process of iteration um, I've always been a big fan of um, and done a lot of research on what Pixar does and how they make their movies because they are pretty much the only place. Like Their first 10 movies all have an average of over 90% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is basically unheard of. Um, and the there's a reason they're so good at making movies. It's not just that they're like awesome people, which they are. It's that they have a process of making movies that is very different than anyone else in Hollywood, which has then started to be copied by all other animated movies, mm-hmm. um, which is basically this process of iteration. They're continuously um, putting the film up on its feet and watching it and showing it to people and getting feedback over and over and over and over and over again, which is easier to do in animation and when you have money because they can draw 
every image of the movie and then watch it and have people do voices and then do that for two years before they even start animating. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've seen the movie and, and they get feedback. What we wanted to do with Freaks was prove that that could be done with no money on, for live action because people don't think that it is possible. And so what we did is we, when we were writing the script, um, we went. We wanted to get away to go kind of... We, we spent a very long time outlining and then we're like, we just need to get like a really bad first draft out. And Adam has at the point at that point had two kids, and his wife said, "If you're going to go to a cabin in the woods with your best friend for five days, while I look after the kids, when you come back, I'm scheduling a reading, so that you're you're not coming back with like half a script. You're coming back like so. Before we left to go write the script, there was already a reading scheduled with ten people to hear the script read by actors. Awesome. And so we came back. We wrote the we wrote the film in three days, and then spent two days like rewriting it. And then on the sixth day, we like walked in like we were rock stars. Like we just wrote a script in five days. Like we're super brilliant. This is the most amazing movie ever. And we had a group of actors read it in front of a group of people. And it made no sense. And everyone was like, what is this movie about? <laughs> like, it doesn't make any sense because it's kind of a mystery. And so we took everyone's feedback. We rewrote it from scratch and we did another reading. And then we took everyone's feedback. We rewrote it, rewrote it from scratch and we did another reading. We did that over and over again um, until everyone was like, the script's pretty good. Then we, our investor, Adam's uncle, was like, well, I love this iteration, but how? there must be something you can do between the script stage and shooting the movie. Because shooting the movie, you're like... Mm-hmm. There's no return from that. Yeah. And so we thought of this idea of basically pre-shooting the movie without any resources, uh, just because you learn so much when you shoot a movie mm-hmm. that you go, oh, man, I wish I knew that. So basically we got two actors and me and Adam, and that was it, wow. in a house with his 5D. It could have been a cell phone. And we literally just like shot a scene every five, 45 minutes. We were just like, okay, doesn't, the blocking doesn't matter. You're here, blah, blah, blah. This is the lines. Improvise the rest. Go. And we would just shoot coverage. Like it, and in a lot of the shots, you can see Adam holding the other camera, shooting the other. Like we didn't, there was no light. The production of it didn't matter. It was just a, the process of shooting it mm-hmm. so that we then had the footage and could kind of go, oh, wow, this, that worked here. And it really helped the two of us as well. And then we shot the movie. And when we shot the movie, we kept some money aside to do a reshoot, not knowing what the reshoot would be, but we knew that because we were both editors, there's always, you always go, crap, I wish we had so, such and such, or man, this scene really sucks, I wish we could do it again. And so we did that, and then when we edited the movie, um, we showed the movie to a group of usually about four or five people every weekend while we edited for four months. So we, nice. And so we would edit all week, show the movie, uh, usually at the beginning to filmmakers and slowly more and more just sort of pedestrian public. Um, and, you know, you'd show the movie and then everyone would be like, the beginning sucks, it's boring, and this makes no sense. And then you'd edit all week and be like, oh, fuck, we, 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 we fixed it. And then a totally new group of people would be like, the beginning sucks, it's really boring, and this part makes no sense. And you'd be like, oh, I guess we didn't fix it. And then we would slowly over these four months continuously show the movie over and over and over again. And the things we were changing would be smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until the end when we would show it and people would be like, wow, that's a great movie. And in the end, we re- we reshot the last scene of the movie because there was a scene we couldn't... No matter how we edited it, we tried taking out the dialogue, we tried doing it all in voiceover, we tried ch- changing the lines, we tried everything we could. The audience just kept saying that last scene sucks. Mm-hmm. And it's the last scene. So then we ended up reshooting just the last two close-ups. And now it's one of people's favorite scenes. Because we knew... The audience told us, I wish that scene was this. I wish they said this. So then we just wrote that down and shot it. 
six months later in Adam's backyard, and uh, it makes the movie. So that iterative process, basically anyone can do it. It's, we didn't pay any of those people. We just had them come over and give them pizza. The funny thing is, like, if you ask someone to read a script, they won't do it. But if you ask them to come over and listen to a script and then talk about it afterwards with five other people, which takes way more of their time, mm-hmm. they're like, yeah, cool, I'll do that, Like, because it seems like a social thing, and you feed them. And so people will, like, people will come and listen to your scripts. They will not read them. So we just took advantage of that. Interesting. So from the from the point of going off to the cabin in the woods for the five days to finishing the film, how long was it total process? Well, we're still you know well, still doing it. The movie we're in the middle of getting it ready to go out in theaters, but um, it's been about I think it was basically five four four or five years. So basically like a year to write it, a year to kind of put it together, like get the money and stuff, a year to shoot it and edit it a year to go to festivals and sell it and you know a year to put it in theaters nice. like we we're, it's coming out in theaters August 2019 it was at TIFF uh, September 2018 we shot it August 2017 and we you know wrote it probably two or three years before that nice. so is there a place where people can go to see where it might be playing near to them um, not yet. I mean, you can check out all our social media, which is all Freaks, uh, Freaks the Film, Freaks Film. Um, and then also freaksfilm.com will have all the info. Um, but it should be basically, they're doing a, um, a, a, it'll start out with 100 screens. So it should be one theater in every city in North America. Amazing. Yeah. Well, very cool. Thank you so much for coming by to chat with us. And I know there was one more thing you wanted to to make note of. Yeah, well, I'm also the founder and creator of Shotlister, uh, which is the cool. industry-leading shot listing app. Uh, that, well, I get emails every day from all around the world of people saying, I don't know how I shot anything before I had this. So um, it's basically an app that lets you to not only create the world's best shot list, but schedule it on a shot-by-shot and minute-by-minute basis, sort of like a one-liner, but for shots. And, uh, and then share it with your crew and change it as you go. Um, and it's basically a lifesaver. I don't know how anyone shoots anything without it. If I you... had like whole conversations about this app and never knew that you, <laughs> yeah. you created it. That's pretty cool. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, we should give copies away however you want to do it. Anyone who, I don't know, does people retweet you or something? What, what do you want yeah, to do? Let's, <laughs> let's, uh, I'll, put it, I'll put it up on various social media and I'll put instructions for Instagram. Instructions yeah, we'll give away copies and, uh, to yeah. anyone who's still listening. There Only you go. guys are Just the dedicated few that <laughs> get a free copy of Shotlister. Um, yeah, or, and you check that out at shotlister.com. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for, for stopping by to chat with us, Zach. No that problem. was awesome.